Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. So Burn, we're 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 talking on the on the day just when OpenAI just announced uh, you know their their new developments. You, you just had a post the other day where you talked about how LLMs will have profound downstream effects on what people learn, who they talk to, even how they communicate. So let's uh, let's get into how you how you feel about about all of this and uh, and what this all means. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked the OpenAI presentation. It's it's nice. Um, there, there's something kind of uh, kind of vivid about Sam Altman, like posing in front of basically like the skulls of his enemies, like all of, all of these <laughs> startups that have been killed because they're now uh, they're now features. But you know, that's sort of what you have to be used to if you're you're building the obvious thing to build on something somebody else builds is that they they might also notice uh, notice the obvious and build it too. Yeah, so like the general the general idea on LLMs changing communications is uh, this idea that you you're normally stuck communicating at a given resolution. If you are a tech person and you're reading a lay person's explanation of some technology, um, and you know that they have something useful to say, you're also going to get through it like you're trolling through all these explanations of like here's what a browser is, here's what an app is, and they spell out what TCP/IP means and all this stuff, and you wish you could skip it. Well, now you can skip it. But on the other hand, if you're reading something you're totally unfamiliar with. And you're just hit with this blizzard of acronyms and terminology and symbols and references. Um, that can also be a slog to get through because you are constantly pausing and trying to unpack things. And I think reading something that you're unfamiliar with side by side with ChatGPT is this really interesting experience where you basically get to tell the writer, okay, stop, slow down, wait, let's take a step back and just explain that again. Like explain it like I'm five. And then you also get to take a document that uh, that has some things you need and some things you mostly things you don't care about, and you basically get to um, run that through an LLM and say, okay, explain this like I'm not five at all. Explain this like I'm an adult and I know like most of this already. So I think that um, that means there's just more more stuff that is consumable to you. I think one neuro but interesting application of that is translations. So. Um, there are just some works that haven't been translated into English, but are interesting. And then um, English is the kind of everyone's second language. So there are many, many more works that haven't been translated into other languages. And I think that's uh, that's something we'll talk about in the past chats. Like there's a time in the not too distant future where the idea of untranslated work is going to be this anachronism. It'll be like being lost. Like you could, you know, it's possible for something like that to happen if there's a book that's never been scanned, never been digitized, and nobody's bothered. But once there's a digital copy and once somebody has the rights to do it, it's just a matter of running it through an API. And yeah, you can read, uh, you know, you can read your differential equations textbook in Tagalog if that's that's what you want to do. And that's actually going to be really interesting because it broadens the number of people who have access to um, to a given kind of information. It means that um, there are fewer fewer language barriers. But um, I don't know that that means fewer people will speak English because the interpersonal stuff will actually still matter. And in fact, I think another piece of this is that. Um, because the set of ideas you could access will be broader, the set of people you could have an interesting conversation with will also be broader. So um, you may end up having this set of friends where you don't actually speak a common language, but you have really interesting conversations that you're translating, or where you 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 speak a common human language, but you use totally different terminology, and um, you can you can still have an interesting discussion with them. I think another uh, the idea of um, transpiling something into a different ideological framework. So if you're like this is 
this is an interesting Marxist argument, but I'm not a Marxist and I don't have the Marxist jargon. Like, make this, uh, make this integralist, make this libertarian instead, but make the same point. Like, you know, find, find the same points, but frame them with that different ideology. I think that's, uh, that's probably trickier to do right now, but not, not too far off. You could quantify sort of the Russell conjugation or the, or the bias. Hey, this has a, you know, this kind of bias or this kind of bias or that, you know, this, if it would be framed different, this is how I'd frame it. If I was this, this, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. What, one thing we were talking about just before the podcast is what, one thing on your mind is where exactly will, will AI be incorporated? What, why don't you uh, unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, I recently started doing AI generated summaries of pieces of the diff because there were people who would say that they, you know, they'd subscribed and they unsubscribed because they weren't sure what to read. They didn't want to read all of it. And it was just hard to tell what part would be interesting. And so they just didn't end up getting as much value out of it as they thought they would. And I thought, well, this is a, this is not, you know, an unsolvable problem. We can just generate a summary so they at least know what they're getting into. And if there's a kind of cryptic title for something, but the summary would make it sound more interesting, then they will go ahead and read that. So um, I started doing that. And um, the first couple of times I did it, I, I sent it along with this note saying, just so you know, these are partially AI generated human edited summaries. And um, so one of my readers emailed back and was like, well, I've already been doing this. And uh, I thought that was interesting, but there'd been other readers who had been, um, who had been doing the from side by side thing that I mentioned, where I say something kind of esoteric about options or whatever, and they would just plug it into ChatGPT as for explanation. And um, one of the things that occurred to me is this question of where does this stuff naturally get done? Does it naturally get done by publishers? Does it naturally get done by the the email client, your app, or whatever? And um, I think there are there are some industries where that question of where where does the AI get done gets really interesting because. You can imagine this ecosystem where there's some companies that are like pure, pure data providers and then they're like pure prompt providers. So there's like a set of people who are giving, giving a model training data. There's another set of people who are coming up with interesting prompts and basically giving you ways to explore that latent space data. And then there are people who actually own the models. And, um, one of the questions that actually arises there is like, which of those is actually durable? And which one has uh, has better economics? And where I think that ends up is that you want to be continuously, you want to be in a position where you're getting the data and you are actually the one applying the fee. You're applying the model to it and giving people the output of that model and letting them interact with the model rather than the raw data because you're getting a lot of data since the usage of that app. Like you're you're getting a lot of data from what queries do people do? You know, instead of, if instead of I'm sending a newsletter. It's like I'm uploading something to a vector database that you you query and you ask. Um, knowing what the queries are tells you something about people's interests and tells you where they're being served, where they're not being served, and, and what to create next. And um, you can train some pretty sophisticated stuff on that. So the, the example that came up to me was um, transcript providers in finance, um, both transcripts of programming spells, transcripts of false experts, where they have started just doing LLM summaries. And I'm sure that months before they were doing that, hedge funds were producing their own LLM-based summaries. And I was wondering who's, who's is going to be better? And what I thought was if you're at a hedge fund, you have all these analysts, they, they have been reading the document, taking notes, sending their portfolio manager, okay, you know, there was uh, like this company held an in yesterday, they talked for six hours, here are the five things that actually mattered. And so that's, that's really good training data. That's, uh, you have a bunch of tokens as an input, you got a couple tokens as an output. Okay, that's, that's what you usually start with. But even if the quality is not as high, if you just have a larger quantity of data, if you have been 
posting transcripts for decades. People have been saving their highlights and adding little notes for decades. You just have so much information on what do people actually extract from that data. So you actually probably have a better product. Um, and one of the intuition pumps there is that alpha generation is one of the most fragmented industries on earth. Like nobody has 10% market share. I don't think anybody has 1% market share. So most, like even if you are at a, an elite firm, the overwhelming majority of the value added and investment is by people who don't work at your firm, but it probably a large fraction of it is by people who do use the same tools that you use. So those tools are going to get a lot smarter faster than your firm gets smarter. And um, if the whole the whole data ecosystem is getting smarter all the time and it's getting smarter faster, you have to be getting smarter faster than it's getting smarter, or you're just left behind and you're just like this low value added redistributor of you know a really really smart automated summary from Daxter or Tigas or Bloomberg or whoever. So it's also another case where um, software, where there are higher returns to scale in AI than there are in the rest of software, where the returns to scale are already great. I want to zoom out a bit and, and sort of make a comparison to to Facebook and Meta, where for the last few years, there was this concern about, hey, what are really opportunities in consumer social in, in an environment where where Meta is so dominant um, you know, across uh, you know, and, and anything that's working, they'll just copy or buy or or, or, or whatever. And, and similarly, I want to ask the opportunity of like, wh- where is an opportunity right now in terms of open AI? We mentioned that, you know, them just shattering the dreams. And it seems like that that will only continue, you know, with with, with Facebook and, and, and Meta, people have been saying, hey, you need to compete, do things that they can't do. So uh, you sort of like more unsavory content, you know, as an example, like what, what are things that Meta can't do because it's highly re- regulated, you know, regulatory or, um, or things for much younger people or sort of different uh, formats that would undercut with what they're currently doing maybe. Um, and, and similarly for, for what are things that OpenAI will never do? Is, is that one sort of framework or evaluating? Like if you're, an, if you're a venture capitalist right now, how are you thinking about uh, opportunities in, in AI and where might you be placing your bets? That's a really tough one. I think that one frame is, okay, you look at these these compounding data advantages and then you try to look at cases where the data advantage could be risky, although OpenAI always assures people they're not actually training based on user interactions. So they have sort of foreclosed that opportunity. I think there there may be cases where you just say, this is this is hard to scale and we can maybe gesture at what we think their future product roadmap is and say that it's, you know, this is not something they're going to launch a commoditized version of in six months. But empirically, that's hard to do because every time they make a new product announcement, a bunch of companies die. And it's not necessarily really obvious ones. Um, so I thought that the one of the really interesting announcements they had, I forgot how they characterized this. Basically, you take a product, you describe what you want to do, and they will give you um, code for the API calls that you want to run to do that thing. And that was really interesting to me because if you hit how a enterprise software companies expand their headcount, um, there's always this mystery of why why do so many people work at Nokia? So many people work at Bell.com? Why do so many people work at all these companies? And I don't think the answer is they're just terribly deficient. Like a lot of the answer is they have all these integrations with all these other companies and you need a lot of people to build those and you need a lot of people to retain them. And like once you offer the integration, if the company you're working with changes its API, now you've got to change the things. And um, if all of that gets easier, then it is faster to to build a company. I guess if I were looking at opportunities, investable opportunities in AI, I would be uh, doing what I think more people are doing now, which is looking for these data acquisition boats, looking for a case where there's some specific 
domain where the data is not online, it's not scrapable, you can't just download it and uh, whether it's for, for IP restriction reasons or because just nobody's downloaded it, um, you know, healthcare data would be a really good example of that. Like if you're if you're downloading lots and lots of healthcare data, you're probably committing a crime after someone else has committed a crime to post it online in the first place. So finding companies that have that kind of lockdown data and then uh, making sure that you're actually that it's compliant, that it's not a you know, HIPAA, like you know, as the as the AI gets smarter, it, it becomes more and more of a HIPAA violation to have your model looking at all of the, all this personal identifiable information and all this healthcare data from individuals. But yeah, finding finding cases like that where there is there is a lot of data where the amount of data is growing fast, where it is not posted online, will not be posted online, and where there are specific constraints on the models, um, the models inputs or outputs that would matter to that industry and wouldn't matter to others, I think is a, a good general framework to start with. That's that's a place where you could have a durable advantage, um, may just not be on on the radar of OpenAI. And I think the other the other on the radar thing is like looking, basically looking for companies that are looking for industries that have been very slow to digitize, but that are generating more data. So I don't... I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think you know an interesting an interesting place for data um, data acquisition is like IoT, not in the not in the kind of lame sense of like your refrigerator can get hacked and start start you know spamming, but um, in the in the sense of tracking complicated machines that are very expensive and where downtime is extremely expensive, and um, just tracking every possible input from those machines. On the other hand, if you do that. Um, Annoyingly, you're you're now in a place where you're just very far behind the the fully integrated companies that have been putting sensors on machines, building models from the sensor data for a really long time. So it's it's hard. Like that's one of the frustrating things about about the AI boom has been that um, you get really excited about how much the world is changing, and you're like, well, you know, which which of these companies that I have that have been big established companies for a decade plus am I most excited to invest in? Like, is it? You know the the software company founded in the 1970s. It has great distribution, and where you know the outlook the outlook inbox outbox is like this wonderful set of training data. Where basically, your if you have an email job, your inbox and outbox are this wonderful set of training data on everything you actually do. Or is it is it the the dominant social network that was founded almost 20 years ago? Or you know is it the GPU company founded in the 90s? Like it's kind of frustrating that it's it's hard for new entrants to to scale massively. And a lot of the new entrants that do scale, they scale in part through partnerships with these established companies. Um, on the other hand, there, there are just, there are spaces where um, there are just different sets of customer constraints and different things, um, different different things people need from the model, um, different levels of accuracy they require and different levels of data sensitivity that they require. Um, some unannounced Personal investment uh, in in one one such company that I think is is really exciting. And it is a case where you can you could sketch out why this is a really interesting idea and where some of the flywheels are, and also you could sketch out why this is not uh, probably not on OpenAI's immediate roadmap. And uh, and then you know the roadmap question it's it's never about will this never be on the roadmap. It's always can you sketch out a roadmap that is a little bit farther than the, like a little bit past the open AI event horizon where everything just gets swallowed um, and that still has something valuable to add and where your your customers will be excited about what you offer right now and will be excited about the next thing you launch and will not you know be immediately DMing you like live while Sam Altman is talking saying, hey, we, we need to talk about how much you're charging and how much he's charging. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. 
Yeah, I, I've been um, yeah interested in, in data sets that you know either OpenAI won't, won't get access to or, or, or aren't even online yet. One that I've thought about for years but haven't quite figured out the right wedge or entry point or, or, or fantasized for years is basically reputation. Uh, so what people think about each other, you know, is is very valuable information. It sort of doesn't want to be on, on the internet, <laughs> it, it seems, or, or or people have had a very difficult time trying to to do that. Um, I do think it's going to happen eventually, and in, in some, you know, and it already happens in in certain verticals, like ratemyprofessor.com, for example. Like, there's a lot of good data on what people think about the profession. You can imagine that for every every profession, um, but then sort of people are more than their professions, right? Um, and people are gossiped about in, in more than their professions. People fantasize about LinkedIn competitors for such a long time. Um, and LinkedIn is the product that just, even though people hate it, it, it just sticks. Uh, and, and one of the ways in which people hate it is this, is this way people will always message us and say, hey, do you know this person? It says you're connected on LinkedIn. And you're like, well, not really, or not super well. I mean, email has that that data, but uh, you know, much more grander, but yeah, is, is not used in that way. Anyways, these are just examples of, of data sets that just haven't been sort of properly structured. Yeah, the interesting one on reputation would be um, Zoom or Google Meet identifying who is a liar based on visual cues of dishonesty and how they, like, if it's Google, um, they can also look at Gmail. So they could, and this would be like, you know, monstrous PII violation. They cannot do this. They, you know, if you even joke about it, I'm sure you get a very serious lecture. But um, you could imagine training some model based on um, looking at transcripts of conversations people have and looking at what they email to people who are not in that conversation about the topic of that conversation and just looking for what are what are the facial expressions, what are the gestures, what are the phrases that indicate someone is absolutely not telling the truth. And um, it'd, be, it'd be useful data um, in a lot of cases. I, I think it's kind of nightmarish to think about it actually getting released everywhere, but... Uh, so it's fun to know that this this exists in the latent space of uh, nightmare AI scenarios. Totally. And, 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 and segueing a little bit, um, you know, it's interesting. So Sam Altman in 2018 or whenever he left Y Combinator, I can't remember, but really had a tremendous, you know, uh, to say to you know, put it lightly, like follow up act where people thought that he was gone for a little bit. Like they were like, oh, he's less relevant now. He was kind of wandering in the woods. Maybe he was fired from YC. Like who, who really knows, right? And he picked... You know, this open AI experiment is nonprofit. People didn't really take it too seriously. And yet he looks like a genius, right? Um, and so there's a similar question as to, you know, if, if you're also in between things and looking for your own open AI opportunity, what is the space right now that has been building up a lot of substance over the, over the years or decades in the case of AI, but is just underrated or underappreciated or within five years or five to 10 years, you could have your own open AI moment. And I, I wonder if that's I wonder if that's something in bio. I wonder if that's uh, something in, in in biotech or longevity or or something that has had a lot of attention, but not quite sort of a or a lot of subs, a lot of dollars, a lot of smart people, but not quite this open AI moment. Or what are your thoughts to that? If you're if you're if Sam Altman was free, uh, was left YC today, twenty twenty three, um, and could do anything, was talented, could raise money, et cetera, um, but not like a domain expert necessarily, but you know, a smart generalist. Where would Sam Altman spend time today? You know, given that AI has already you know had its moment, that is that is a really hard question. I almost feel like um, if you want a really good answer from that, um, you should like 
give me, you know, the millions of dollars you would get from running YC for a while and then a couple months to years to find myself. And then then I'd have a good answer. I feel like it's it's really tough to have an off-the-cuff answer. And I don't actually know the extent to which Sam was like out of YC and then thinking about the next thing to do or thinking about should he just retire and enjoy life? Um or or whether there was this constant building interest in AI over time where at some point he realized actually this is more important and um YC is actually too high an opportunity cost and I have to go do something else. I I don't know, um, but it is it is a really, really tough question to answer. I do think, yeah, uh, off-cup biology, um, it sounds sounds right. I think the regulatory obstacles there get, get very annoying. So maybe um, maybe if there's a special economic zone for that, I think that's uh, that, that would make things more promising. But actually, um, special economic zones in general and um, the idea of building building online communities or building IRL communities. I think that is that is a domain whose time is is definitely coming because we've had we've had this long period where we've been able to form these digital communities really well. And that ends up being this nice complement to physical meetups. And I went to a really, really good uh, academic conference this weekend on uh, the work of Rene Girard. And there were just a ton of people there where I knew them. Um, I knew them, you know, Online under real names, online under fake names, and um, but I like I knew them, and it was really really good to hang out, and um, like all such conferences, like you wish it were much much longer, and um, you can you can sort of extrapolate that to well, what if what if the conference were just indefinite? What if we all just co-located to some new new place, and because we all agree on certain weird things, which is why we coalesce as a community, why don't um, why don't we ensure that that place actually adheres to those weird norms? So, like, I think that is, uh, you know, step one of um, new new social networks forming online is um, is you you meet people online, and then step two is two way plane tickets, and then step three is one way plane tickets. You go somewhere, you do not go back. It's your new home, and you're actually home for the first time, really for the first time since you were just entirely too online and spent all of your online time with this set of friends and got really close to them. Um, and I think so. I think that is. That is definitely an area that gets really interesting. You once again have uh, like you have even more serious um, regulatory challenges in one sense, but in another sense, you do get to somewhat choose what uh, what regulations you live under. Because once you say what matters is not exactly where I am, because where I want to be, like the center of my universe, is wherever all of my friends choose to go, then maybe you guys all put together a dominant assurance contract. You say if enough people, if enough of us choose to move somewhere. We all either move there or pay some giant, like forfeit some giant sum of money because we actually overpromised. And then you shop around for the right jurisdiction and find somewhere that you can actually call home. So I think that that would be a bet for something really interesting. And um, I think that, yeah, being, you know, the number of countries in the world is probably way too low. Um, it's way lower than the number of potential theoretically possible countries. And so uh, we should we should get that number up. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I've been thinking about this quite a bit as well. You know, like like you having been close to the charter city and network state sort of communities and projects, uh, but then also I moved to Miami. Uh, you, you were in Austin, um, and so you know, as part of the Keith Raboy, uh, you know, crew who moved down there, and I, I don't know if there were a few hundred or a couple thousand, but there were definitely there was definitely a crew that, that that moved there. And I've actually been thinking most recently about like 
hey, there's the proxies of, of the world that are coordinating online and then trying to you know coordinate with some government to, to get some special deal. And I, I appreciate sort of the, the regulatory arbitrage or experimentation that that enables. But one thing I've been a little bit uh, you know, sober on over the past couple of years is just how hard it is to get people to move and and how much people are willing to tolerate uh, to like even Balaji has come around recently saying, hey, people aren't leaving San Francisco like or, you know, not everyone is going to leave or most people are going to stay no matter how bad it gets. The Gary Tans of the world, like brilliant, successful, wealthy people are going to pay taxes. There'll be some that leave some, you know, sort of uh, libertarian, uh, you know, uh, crypto folks and, you know, and others too, but that most people are, are going to stay. And so it's it's a little bit like Paul Graham reached, told Elon, he's like, why don't you just create a new Twitter? It would be trivial. And you could just, you know, you could just do it as opposed to try to take over the existing one that feels like a lot of bureaucracy that feels very difficult. And of course, we've seen a, a lot of Twitter clones, we'll get into your, your piece on that in a minute. And that's really hard to do. And actually, uh, Twitter's network effects are just so strong, which is similar to San Francisco. And so I wonder, you know, you're familiar with the Free State Project, of course, you sort of this, for the audience, this group of people that I think it's New Hampshire that basically said, hey, um, let's like try to change the politics of, of New Hampshire by, by, you know, or an element of New Hampshire by moving enough sort of aligned people. And I'm surprised why why more people don't try that in San Francisco or in New York, just saying, hey, like, well, to start, all the we should have more agglomeration. Like smart, aligned people should live together, per, per your point. And tip, I feel like we've we've thought about exit a bit too much and not enough. I don't know if it's voice or, or just enough about trying to change it, sort of do it what Elon did to Twitter, which is different because he bought the whole thing, but but changing it from from with uh, sort of taking over, but within cities like the supervisor votes are determined by hundreds or low thousands of votes. Like, why couldn't ten thousand people move to San Francisco and change the politics of of, of the city? What, what what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would I would hope that that would work. I think it's like the track record of taking decaying institutions and turning them around is not. It's just not great, and it like it often turns out that you found you found one problem, and then once you're nominally in charge, you find like fifty other problems that the people in charge have either been like shunting aside or like it was a problem for them too, and so they were they were partly ineffective for these more structural institutional reasons, and then you realize that you you know you, you need a bigger head start to get rid of those. Like I hope I hope it works. You know I hope that. Uh, I hope that Gary Tad is able to ruthlessly seize power and um, and implement or like obvious obvious reforms, but uh, I, I I worry that that's not enough. Um, and I think yeah, you end up with this weird balance where you sort of um, you know as as some people leave those cities, the people who are left are the people who are just more satisfied with the status quo. And I think in SF, one of the really interesting dynamics is that there are there are definitely parts of the city that do feel sort of like, you know, they feel like a really, really nice city in the developed world where things function really well. And as long as you're always in those neighborhoods or in an Uber to a tech company office, um, you can, it's, it's sort of like that, uh, there's that, little soliloquy in um, bonfire of the vanities um i forget if he uses the term airlock or what but it's like you as he travels through manhattan he just keeps himself hermetically sealed from the rest of the city and he goes straight from the townhouse to the trading floor with like 20 seconds of exposure to actual new york and it's fine and i worry that as the people who can't even tolerate the 20 seconds of exposure leave or as the people who can't afford the hermetic seal leave that you actually end up with people who are indifferent because they sort of exist more online than than IRL and 
know, the, the stuff that they're doing, they are doing it for a global market. Like if you work at a software company, um, it doesn't really matter what happens in San Francisco, as long as your physical safety is not threatened. And as long as the taxes don't get too high too fast, like you're pretty much, you're okay with a pretty wide range of outcomes in the tender one, as long as you go around it. So that, that tends to mean that you can have these cities that have these agglomerations of talent and lots of super, super smart and effective people, and also a slight majority of, um, maybe ineffective to counter-effective people who keep voting in the wrong people. And that just ends up being a stable equilibrium because everyone in the middle leads and people in the middle are the swing voters who actually determine political change, or at least like, I guess they, they determine like year to year election to election political changes. I think the more, the more sweeping changes, it's not, uh, you know, the new deal did not happen because there were you know a couple swing voters in a couple places who changed their minds. There are actual personalities and plans at work. People had these definite visions of what the state should be and what the state do, and they put them into place. So when things get really extreme, then you have a different dynamic, but I guess we're, um, Annoyingly, not not there yet. We're just in this weird, uh, weird purgatory. To the extent that Elon, you, you believe he wholesale sort of, you know, reformed Twitter, uh, like t- took it over and you know took it over as if it were starting a new thing, or you know, like having total control. To the extent that you agree with that characterization, do you think that we should be more optimistic about our ability to reform uh, institutions, or do you think that was either not the right characterization or just an exception that sort of proves the rule? Yeah, yeah. I think the misunderstood thing about Twitter, which I didn't really understand until I was thinking about why it hasn't died yet, because it is kind of surprising. Like, there have been more outages. Um, like, the, the pace of new feature shipping has got better, but it's a less reliable site than it used to be, at least in my experience. Um, it, I think what happens on Twitter that makes it um, really durable is you have this very hyper-specific network effect around emerging new events where if you are, if you know that Sam Altman is speaking and you want to know exactly what's being said in real time, you want all the close quotes, um, you should not go to the second best site because there will be slightly slower people, there'll be slightly lower density of quotes. um, And you know that Twitter is probably where to go to get those real-time updates. I think the only, like the closest exception to that is... um, that if you if you're hearing about something that you think is um, is market moving in some sense, you can just open up Google Finance or something and just be looking at the the stock ticker live. Um, if it's a more narrow question and it exists on manifold markets or another prediction market, then you could you could have that window open and see live people react to this news. But it's like it's really hard to have a live look at what's going on anywhere except Twitter. And since if you're already on Twitter, whenever anything interesting is happening right now and you won't follow it, then you Twitter is probably where you will end up posting your immediate response to whatever's happening right now. So you contribute to that network effect. And those, those networks, they spin up in response to every new emerging event because there's always a different cohort of people who are interested. And like even... Even within different Twitter groups, there's like sometimes it's AI Twitter and SaaS Twitter. Sometimes it's like AI Twitter and hardware rumor Twitter. Um, sometimes it's like AI Twitter and stock market Twitter. So, you know, fit to it. So you get different intersections of those social networks. And um, no one's been able to peel off a super majority of any one of those networks, but you'd really have to get the network and all the adjacent networks. Or, or like if you get like this one core network, but all the adjacent networks are still on Twitter, then whenever any really big thing happens, all of the people in that middle network, they go back from blue sky to Twitter because they realize they're a little bit behind and they're really addicted to being right on the cutting edge all the time. So that's been, uh, 
I think a surprising contributor to that. Like I just, I've never had Twitter open during some emerging event and wondered what was going on at Blue Sky or Mastodon or Threads. Like I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's some good stuff. Like I'm sure I'm missing stuff. And if there were some universal network of short messages, that would be even better. But since no one has an incentive to let that happen, then uh, Twitter Twitter still ends up being it. Um, it's really tough to bet against Meta. Um, I I own shares of Meta, so I'm betting on Meta um, for the moment. But they they will have to really think carefully about where it is that they can have like what communities on Meta um, can end up on Threads like and prefer Threads to Twitter, such that the the marginal new person who cares about emerging like who cares about breaking news or just cares about fun jokes about current events can go to go to their side and not the other one. And then um, since threads, they did explicitly say they want to downplay news on the service compared to other kinds of content. Maybe they are actually competing in a slightly different market. Like maybe they do get the sort of timeless short form observations and they don't get the other stuff. But then you run into the problem of um, there are in, in addition to those emerging temporary situational social networks that Twitter still dominates, there are the the longer term ones where you meet someone because you, you get to know someone on Twitter because you're talking about some some work interest or sports or a movie or you know genre or whatever, but you end up actually knowing them and caring about how their dog is doing or the funny thing their kids said or whatever. So then then you're then you're stuck in whatever the dominant network is. Yeah, and you you're saying there's opportunity to build vertical specific networks, but it's unclear how big the prize is because even Twitter itself, it's unclear how big the prize is there, right? Yeah, and that I don't, like you don't know what the what the vertical will be. And Twitter seems to win disproportionately when the vertical is extremely narrow. When the vertical is like, what did Tim Cook say on Apple's earnings call right now, today? That's, that's a network that exists four times a year and then it goes away. And um, while it exists, it exists on Twitter. And then it, it has to be reassembled. Like anyone who wants to be Twitter, they have to be able to reassemble those networks on the fly, not knowing what the network will be. So it's just like whichever site has the most addicts and has the most people who are paying attention to the news and then filtering it and commenting on it and commenting on the comments and so on, that site just has this durable advantage that, that lasts, um, I think it lasts longer than other social network advantages, in part because the fact that the many networks, like the little epicycles of networks within it are so temporary that you just don't know what to build and you don't know who to target to build the next one. It is interesting, like from a consumer perspective, if you were to compare, you know, 2024 and 2019 as an example in terms of how consumers spend time with with their phones, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snap, um, you know, WhatsApp, etc. It feels like it's not that different. And e- even like 10 years ago, outside of TikTok, and, and certainly decreased Facebook usage, but, you know, uh, you know, supplemented by just them owning Instagram and, and WhatsApp, it feels like, and, you know, LinkedIn, let's add to that, it feels like there's just not that much different use case. And so it, it's, it's, some, it's interesting to think about, like, five to 10 years from now, is, is it really just going to be, you know, Twitter, Insta, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, TikTok, kind of like having the same use cases or are we going to have a different paradigm of uh of, of of social it's almost like you know, we'll get to agi sooner than we'll disrupt linkedin or something or sooner than than like we'll disrupt twitter like how, how do you uh how do you think about that yeah yeah that's, that's interesting to think about like the next the next trillion intelligent beings will all be agi agents but they will all have linkedin profiles <laughs> and they will be messaging you constantly um 
Yeah, I think like this happens in other categories. Like there was a time when office software was just this continuous flurry of different changes and Microsoft was always worried about falling behind and everyone's trying to figure out what is what is the actual office suite. You know, they like PowerPoint was added to the mix and word processing, its nature sort of changed. And then after a while, it became more like the the standard got defined by the products and um at this point, you know, if someone says send me a deck, like they they almost never mean send me a keynote file. They they mean either send me a PowerPoint if it's like a Fortune 500, or they mean export your keynote file to a PDF if it's like you're pitching a Fortune 500 and you're not a Fortune 500. So um, there's like you know Google has made some inroads there. They do some things better. Like I think their their spell check in Google Docs is actually really excellent, very contextually aware. Um, the mistakes it makes are really interesting, clever mistakes, and so um, that is that is hard to beat. But um, for other stuff, yeah, once once the category is really established, and once you have this dominant player, they sort of define what that category is, and then there can be other categories. So I think, like if you if you defined um, document editing, or if you define like spreadsheets as Excel, then you can say, or yeah, I guess if you define if you take the tasks that people did in spreadsheets 10 or 20 years ago and say, well, that's a category, Excel still wins that. But um, there are a lot of things where people used to do it in increasingly complicated Excel spreadsheets. And then they were like, we, we have to stop doing it in Excel. Like everything is breaking. And when you hit F9 to reload, your computer just hangs for 10 minutes. So let's just do it in Pandas and we'll store the data in a database instead of in you know a giant tab in our spreadsheet. And so some of those tasks just moved over to a different medium that was better suited to them. But it's not it's not part of the same category at all. Like pandas, pandas is a free product anyone can download. So it doesn't it doesn't have market share in revenue terms, but it does have market share in usage terms and is slowly eating into some of the Excel use cases. But then there are other things where just um, the like the Excel data model has affected the data model people have in their head when they think about company financials and operating models and things like that. So once your product establishes the lingua franca for a category, uh, it it becomes hard to disrupt, even though it does mean that you you eventually reach this sort of static point where there's a lot you can't change because everyone's used to it. And uh, one of the cool things about Excel is that they in some cases, retain backwards compatibility for menu shortcuts that no longer exist. So like the same sequence that starts with alt, it used to navigate through a menu and now it just does a thing and the menu doesn't really exist anymore. So they've maintained backwards compatibility with people's muscle memories, but that also means that they have to define this set of tasks that users want to accomplish and they can't really touch things that might interfere with those tasks. If we define social network use cases the way that we define them right now, then we probably have some of the same things. But um, I don't know, I could imagine that a... Uh, say a TikTok substitute that is just like a continuous stream of AI generated viral entertainment that can the TikTok has this huge surface area of content they could show you based on all the little signals from all your behaviors. But um the latent space of hypothetical meme videos is even bigger than the actual space of meme videos. So you could imagine a replacement for that. And it's it's not a coincidence that I chose the the newest one as the one that's most disruptable because that's so that's generally the case. Like things, things that are new can be disrupted. The older they get, the more they have just, uh, more we've sort of grafted them into a process or grafted them onto our behavior and um, can't really change it. I, I want to segue into, you know, sort of a, something you've written about and a trend that's happened where, you know, sort of 
tech companies are trying to become more like media companies and media companies are trying to uh, you know, add more products on top of their distribution. Um, you, know, you wrote about, uh, you know, you, you had a post called Write Your Own Catalyst about Hunderbrook, a, a company that, that you know, does investigative research and, and trades ahead of it. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting combination of, of media and monetization. And, and you, of course, for the diff have, have thought a lot about, hey, you're creating a lot of value in the world with your, your writing. Um, what is the best monetization for for you to capture um, that that value? So let, let's both talk about um, sort of the the broad trend and as you see it, or, or different models that have intrigued you. Maybe maybe this one, Hunterbrook, as an example. But then also how, how you've thought about your own individual business and the the idea maze you've explored as to what makes the most sense for for what you want to do. Yeah. So my reaction to Hunterbrook was partly, and this was like this is something Matt Levine mentioned too. Is like this is in some ways old news. Like. A very, very common thing in discretionary investing on many different timescales is you come up with an idea, you make a trade, you immediately tell a bunch of people about your idea so that they make the same trade. Like there are literally conferences that are devoted to this. Um, and you can go to these conferences and you hear a bunch of pitches. And sometimes you can look up the holdings of the hedge fund whose manager is doing that pitch. And you're like, wow, it looks like your, your biggest long position is your top long pitch. And then the thing you want a bunch of puts on is your top short pitch. But it's actually, it's really valuable for, for them to share their idea, especially if they just they know that this company is misunderstood and they can get it better understood. It's valuable for them to get feedback on their idea and to get it critiqued. And then um, it's also valuable for the listener, both because you get an idea, you're not the first person to get it, but there's still usually room for that idea to work. And um, you may get these second order ideas from, okay, they they pointed out like this difference between these two companies and um, we can we can apply that model to a different domain and then find find the next version of the thing that they pitched. So that part, I think, was was kind of um, had existed for a long time. But I think if you flip it around and say, what if um, Hunter Book is actually like a, a different way to think about the editorial calendar, where you are specifically trying to find the stories that will move the market? I think that that actually has some potential. Um, I have heard that Bloomberg um, at least has done that in the past. They used to rank people based on how much their stories moved the market, among other criteria. And um, I don't know if they still do, and I don't know how much of a factor that was. But that kind of thing has been done. But I think there's there's room to make that the core of the business model rather than make that just uh, one one element among many in uh, in a very big and complicated bundle where the, the economics of any one part of it are really, really opaque. Um, in general, I think that it's um, it's been interesting to see this this simultaneous process of media companies realizing, hey, if we go direct to consumer, we don't have to be reliant on Netflix, and we aren't um, using our content to subsidize their audience acquisition, so they can make their own content and cut us out of this entirely. Um, and meanwhile, that that they can help erode the traditional theatrical release model and like help erode every part of the business model and turn it into something they control. Um, that turns out to be a lot harder than it looks. Like the part where you spend a ton of money on original content and a ton of money marketing it, um, a lot of people can copy that aspect of Netflix. And then the part where you do eventually start generating serious free cash flow has been has been harder for many competitors. But we'll see. You know, Disney has a great content library and um now they just have a lot more granular information about what people want to see, what they care about. Like I, I've always been obsessed with this idea that Netflix, they can literally tell, you know, which which character or which plot line you respond to more by looking at when do you actually pause. And if there's someone where you could just say, like statistically, if this person is on the screen delivering a monologue, this you will not pause. Or like if there is an action scene in this movie, you will not stop until it's over, no matter what your bodily needs are. Um, that is that's very useful information 
for them, and it's information nobody else has. So they're building a, a data moat. Again, we're back to back to our original topic. They're building a data moat. No one else can emulate it. Um, with with Disney, I think part of the bet you have to make is like the the existing IP, like the franchise value of Star Wars and Marvel and all the Disney stuff is like that plus a lesser data mode that maybe doesn't go quite as fast and where they don't have quite the same data science team, um, that maybe the sum of those is comparable to Netflix. Maybe it's better, maybe it's worse. Um, for others, it's just harder to say. Like, you know, you feel you feel bad for Warner Brothers Discovery that they don't want to be completely left behind and own just this legacy business where you you basically, when you're trying to come up with your long-term financial projections, it's like, let's call an actuary and see how soon our customers will die. But on the other hand, I don't know how many independent streaming services the world actually needs, and um, I don't know how many how many can reach viable economics. It looks like a lot of them have have dialed back their expansion significantly, and they have they have seen some price power. So it does seem like people just get attached to certain franchises, and um, they do have some willingness to spend more. But it'll be a while before before that process finishes. And then on the other end, you have tech companies that um, are trying to bundle in more media and entertainment options. Amazon is the most salient example. And um, they're actually, like it turns out both of these businesses are really hard. Like you can lose billions of dollars on a streaming service, but you can also lose a lot of money on a new Lord of the Rings series. Um, so nobody, um, like everybody, I think everybody might have seen the other company's job as the easy one, and theirs is the one that really requires finesse. And then um, it turned out that everybody was right that their job is actually hard and that'd be really, really talented to get it right. And even then, you have to be like talented and lucky to get it to get it right persistently. Um, in terms of the diff model, you know, I've I've always had that line of uh, newsletter is um, it can be a business, but it can also be a customer list and brand name in search of a business. I'm very excited to read the new Bridgewater Associates book because Bridgewater is just in dollar terms the most impressive example of this, where it was just um, Ray sharing his thoughts on the market with subscribers, and eventually his subscribers were like, Ray, please, you know, instead of us faxing this to the portfolio manager, why don't we cut out several middlemen and have you be the portfolio manager? So that is a, a very enticing proposition to me. And um, I think like one one possibility is that uh, the entire arc of Bridgewater has been, they start as a newsletter that has really, really good financial advice. They turn into a hedge fund that's operationalizing that advice and then performance declines, but the newsletter remains good. And so it eventually becomes just the world's highest ticket newsletter where you're literally paying millions of dollars a year to read Ray's thoughts and then you repeat Ray's thoughts. You sound very, very smart because they have a lot of researchers doing a lot of work on every economic phenomenon imaginable. And um, and maybe even if your returns are not amazing, you're still happy with the the overall business. But I do think like when you when you have a newsletter, you are you're creating this um, self-selected group of people. They have some things in common, but they know you, they don't necessarily know each other. And when you have a self-selected group of people with interests in common and those interests are lucrative and you know the few fall down the list of the Forbes 400, um, finance and technology are very, very common sources of wealth and uh, growing over time. Um, there's just a lot of opportunities to make profitable introductions. And then there are a lot of businesses that are fundamentally the business of making an introduction between two people who can make a lot of money together and then finding a way to get paid for that. So I do recruiting through the newsletter. 
And um, I've done some investing through the newsletter and do more of that, done more of that over time. And um, I will I will continue to expand those things and just continue to make the newsletter this this nexus of um, more of uh, more of a merchant bank and less of just uh, me sending email blasts to lots of people. The email, the email will be part of the mix for a very long time. I do enjoy the research process. I enjoy the right process. I really enjoy getting feedback from readers, positive and negative. I think that's uh, one of the just hidden joys of the paid newsletter model is, um, and this is something Substack has talked about a lot, is like there are hate readers for free media, but there are not really hate subscribers. So if people are paying people are paying to read your stuff and they disagree with you, they actually give constructive criticism. They will tell you what you did wrong. Um, and it's actually like one of the kind of minor details here is like I have... Uh, I've noticed that um, some of the people with really impressive engineering backgrounds are incredibly good at spotting typos. And there's got to be a connection there that if you can look at a page of source code and you can be like, oh, you missed a semicolon. Oh, you know, that that should be a new line. Um, that That is a, a force multiplier. You're, you're saving yourself um, not just a lot of time debugging, but just a lot of uh, psychological harm from hating yourself for writing code that doesn't run. And... Um, that must that must generalize to to things like using a homonym or accidentally using the wrong word or whatever. If you were to dial up the investing, what do you think is the best vehicle? Is it a venture firm? Is it a hedge fund? Is it like what is it or the best type of investing practice that would dovetail nicely with uh, with the def? I think venture is the case where the specific kind of information asymmetry that. Um, this kind of newsletter as central node in a network that does not otherwise exist, where collapsing that information asymmetry is the most lucrative. Because especially very early on, like later stage investing is more about matching money to opportunities that require money. And, you know, people, like you can build a spreadsheet for a late stage investment, but there's there's a stage at which if you're building a spreadsheet, it is, you know, it's creative fiction. And um, I think that at that stage, the... Um, the founder funder fit becomes really, really important. And you want to connect people who can actually give good advice. You want to connect them to people who will take good advice. Um, you can do some strategic things where if you have someone on the cap table, they can actually make genuinely useful introductions. And that's, that's a very hit or miss thing. And um, I think this is like one of the advantages of Y Combinator is actually kind of holding, like turning those vague promises into something people actually get noticed for and get get called out for, um, you know, if someone is on the cap table because they can introduce you to X and they don't introduce you to X, um, that that information can get out um, in the Y Combinator network. And that's that's kind of by design. So, um, you know, trying to engineer that sort of thing. So it's basically like trying to be um, the, the central node that um, then identifies other latent networks and finds a new, like connects people to the new central node in that network. I think that's that's where a lot of um, value gets added. Um, I am active in public markets as well. That's fun. Um, there's like, there's always this question of uh, whether, you know, if I write about a company and disclose that I'm long, does that mean I'm biased? Or does that mean you should take me seriously because I actually do want to own the company stock? Um, and I, I tend to basically, I am much... I, the companies I own shares in are generally companies I'm interested in. Um, and so I do end up writing about them. And then there's a set of companies where they are either um, 
a goodbye to me or a good sell to me for for very prosaic reasons. Like um, there's a surprising number of scam companies out there that haven't gone to zero yet. I think a lot of hedge funds that lost money shorting stocks um, that have a lot of opportunities to make that money back shorting stocks right now. But you know, there's not that much fun stuff to say about this litany of little scam codes that go public. Um, so I tend not to write about just uh, the the fraud du jour, but um, and I tend not to write about you know microcaps trading at less than cash on hand, except as like a general category, because I I think in that case you do run into this problem of okay, let's say stocks at five dollars a share, companies like marginally profitable has ten dollars a share in cash, and you think that's just too cheap, like it should be it should be eleven maybe, and that's you know including a discount for it's probably not managed that well, et cetera. Um, if you write about it and the stock goes to eight, you've immediately made sixty percent. And if you sell, you're almost certainly selling to someone who literally took your advice and wants to be along for the ride with your investment. And so that's a really fraught position to be in. Um, like that's, you know, that's that's not something that I would want to do. But um, it's also something where the risk reward has gotten a whole lot worse because now you know that not only is the stock a lot closer to what you think the fair value is, but now the marginal holder of that stock is not someone who did the like did the research, developed a lot of conviction on their own. They really love this idea, and you know they they want to hand this stock off to their heirs when they die if it hasn't reached fair value yet. It's someone who heard a pitch, thought it was a good pitch, they bought, and I've been in that position. Like I, you know, a fair number of things that I own or short, I hear about it from someone else. I'm like, yeah, you know, sounds reasonable. But I found that um, there's there's the classic line in finance that you can borrow someone's ideas, but you can't borrow their conviction. I have found that that works. Um, over a fairly short period, but you either follow the company on your own and get more into it than the original person who told you about it, or you find yourself um, really reactive to any incremental news flow because someone else did a lot of the research. They have a lot more of the context to interpret that. And um, you know, if you bought it because it was growing and then it missed earnings one quarter, you feel like, well, now I have to do a bunch of research and I've already lost money. And so now I went from having an asset to having two different liabilities. I have the loss and then I have the the time loss. So um, it actually uh, is just a, it's a very different process for owning that. So I, I try to remain really aware of that. And I basically write about and disclose companies that I think I will own for a while and that I think are genuinely interesting companies. And then for other stuff, I, I will invest in it, but um, you know, tend to tend to not um, not write about it that much often because there's just a whole lot less to say. I remember there was a time, maybe it was a year ago or two years ago, where you came out with sort of an update on how some of your investments had done and I was they'd done phenomenally well. And I was like, wow, I wish I was in the I was in the burn business. There was a there was another blogger who actually oh, went through all of yeah. my disclosures, and he he yeah, and that was actually a really good year. And um, so, you know, and my 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 investing track record is like there's I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I've taken a lot of short term capital losses on a lot of different things, and part of that is just I noticed, and this is what many people notice, is that um, there is no one who's as creative and effective an arguer as someone who is down like 10% on a trade. Like you are just like the smartest person ever explaining why it's actually an even better deal right now. And so you end up putting all of your energy, if you if you aren't rigorous about this stuff, you end up putting all of your energy into justifying your own dumb mistakes. And um, so you're basically like trying to use all of your intelligence to make yourself dumber, which is not a very good habit. So I, and I hate this because I used to be just like a very, very classic value investor. I'm still very influenced by the value investing worldview, but I try to be pretty rigorous about like, if I buy it because I think it's going up and it goes down, there's clearly something I didn't know. And the more it goes down, the more I should just sell it and rethink. And for different companies, I'll, I'll set that parameter at different levels. But I, I try to be pretty careful about that. 
And then uh, I think the, the drawback to doing that is that um, then you end up with a portfolio of a lot of things where you bought it a year ago and you made 10% or you shorted it a year ago and it's down 10% and then nothing else happened. And so it's just sort of sitting there and there's not much to do differently. So I've tried to tried to be more careful about uh, time time based in addition to loss based stops of like, if I'm not more excited than I was six months ago, even if it's up and I think I'm right, if it's, you know, if things aren't improving more than I expected, then it's probably time to look at something else. Totally. You know, you're, you're being, uh, you're being very humble, but in preparing for this podcast, I've looked back at a lot of your, your posts and I'll see so sort of when you, you know, said you were investing in things and anecdotally, I'm like, huh, you know, this, this is, uh, this is done pretty well. And I'll also link to the other post where the other guy aggregated from that specific year. So we'll put a pin in this on our next episode. I want to go into your other internet media property, capital gains, where you explain a lot of, uh, you know, f- finance terms that, that'd be fun to, to dig into. Burn, always, uh, always a pleasure. Until next time. Yes, likewise. This is great. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars. And check out Burn's excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 